Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Poison isn't everything, and there's no thing without toxin. The dosage makes it either a poison or a remedy. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are, as you may have guessed, talking about poisons. Yes. Poisons are one of those things that doesn't get very much love in 5e, to put it mildly. No, it really doesn't. (laughs) They seem to have gone out of their way to make poisons not viable in 5e. Yeah, I mean, it's something hard to manage. It is something to keep like in your inventories and stuff, and then you've got to track how many doses you have or if you've hit with it or if there's a timed effect. So I can see where it can be a lot of bookkeeping. And 5e, I think they tried to get away. I've heard a lot of people complain about with 4th edition, they tried to make 4th edition feel too video gamey. And so I think they stepped away from poisons in 5th edition to possibly get away from that. I think it was a combination of things, and we'll get into some of the more details of that as we go along. But it is a slightly more complicated issue, and it, a lot of it is secondary effects of other decisions that they made, other design decisions that they made for the game. Fair. Things like, you know, getting rid of attribute damage and things of that nature. Yeah. So that kind of thing, and I mean, we'll hint at it more, but poisons were a very dangerous thing, particularly in second edition, less so in third, but even still, especially if you had like a thief or a rogue or an enemy that had a poison, it it hit hard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so the big reason why we're talking about poisons today is because in my home game that James is a player in, James is playing a myconid spore druid who is delving into poisons. And so we needed to come up with ways to craft poisons, ways to use poisons, more poisons than the handful. I think there's like 12 or 13 in the published books. Right. And even with those, they don't give much in the way of how to create them or what it takes. I mean, when you look at, you know, writing spell scrolls, there's paragraphs and tables and, you know, you need this much materials and this much time and this much gold cost. It is fairly detailed, as you would expect. And then like, hey, I'm going to make a poison. And they're like, you can make a poison. I'm like, what kind of poison can I make? You can make a poison. I'm like, well, that doesn't help me. <laughs> right. I think there are four poisons listed on the table that have any real rules to them. Yeah. Serpent venom, wyvern venom, purple worm venom. All three of those have to be harvested from an incapacitated or dead creature. Right. And then carrion crawler mucus, which, again, has to be harvested from a carrion crawler. Right. But then you look at something. So I'm also running a game. I am running Tomb of Annihilation. And you've got the Yanti. And the Yanti have plenty of access to poison. They do carry some poisons with them. So... Obviously, poisons were intended to be part of the game, just they seem to have taken them largely from the player's hands, which I think was definitely a misstep from Wizards in this case. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and get into this a little bit. Let's start off talking a little bit about the history of poisons. You wanted to bring that up and talk about that a bit. So I'm going to let you take the lead on this for a little bit. Okay. So again, going back in second edition, poisons, they hit really, really heavy. 
second edition they did poisons rarely did actual like hp damage generally what they would do is they did attribute damage so you'd have a strength of 15 you got hit by a poison you failed your con save you'd wind up with a strength of 14 or 13 and this poison could tick down further uh, if you ever hit a strength of zero a constitution of zero or an intellect of zero, your character just died. Yep. There was one particularly nasty poison. And again, second edition was really bad with this. I am not terribly sad they got rid of this. It didn't take away attributes. It didn't take away hit points. It took away levels. Whole freaking levels. I'm a level twin wizards. You get booped in the snoot. Nope, you're a level eight wizard now. Congratulations. It was really bad. You know, that was the same thing with creatures like whites and vampires. They had level drain. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was really, really rough. And again, Mm -hmm. second edition was known to be an extremely brutal form. They lightened that up quite a bit in third edition and third edition, even still in the games that still largely focused on third edition, namely Neverwinter's Nights. Your poisons did attribute damage versus hit point damage. So they would give you a roll penalty or knock off attribute points to that point to also, if you hit zero on an attribute, your character died. Constitution was the other one. If your constitution dropped to zero, your character died. No death saves, just roll new dice. You're rolling yep. a new character out. And so, again, yeah, they've... I think in third edition, there were only like two or three poisons in the player's handbook and DMG that actually did HP damage. HP damage. Yeah. And there were of- like... 30 poisons on the list. Yeah, it was rough. I wish I still had my third edition books with me so I could go over them more. But yeah, yeah I have no. them. they're on the shelf, but they're on the <laughs> shelf behind all of the other equipment in the room. And so right. I'm not going to go and grab them right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> older editions get buried. It's how it happens. <laughs> yep. But I think that is a great thing is these poisons, even if they don't do HP damage, you don't want to do attribute damage, they could still and still affects either a slow, so it slowed down your movement speed. You could have basically what amounted to disadvantage on rolls with a roll penalty. You could cause blindness. It could cause stiffness. Some poisons cause petrification, which we talked about in previous episodes before was a status effect that's largely gone out of style. And so you can do a lot with poisons other than just knocking off hit points or knocking off ability scores. You can think of all of the different things you could make Maybe you drop your charisma because your character can't speak properly, or maybe you just cause silence in general because your character can't speak. Blindness, especially if you have a martial character, is a huge detriment. You could have your characters hallucinate and have something like color spray or dazzling lights that occur. Our shimmer spores that we made with with Jack from... Uh, Tales of the John, Man- John, John from Tales of Manticore, Manticore. Yeah. yeah, we've gotten a lot of use with this one, and this one is a lot of fun. And again, it doesn't necessarily do anything, but basically, it's a crowd control poison at this point. That's really fun. Again, color spray to kind of disable or petrify someone, or not to petrify, but to uh, kind of daze them and get them out of a fight for a while. Gives those players a bit more flexibility on the battle map, as it were. Right, yeah. And we'll go into a little more detail on those sorts of things here in a little bit. So, as I mentioned, or as James also mentioned, in older editions, poisons tended to do attribute damage. So you would have poisons that would deal, like, 1d6 strength damage on the initial, and then they also had a secondary effect. Sometimes the secondary effect was the same as the primary effect, sometimes it affected a different thing. So, like, 
maybe the first one was a dexterity damage and then subsequent ones were strength damage or the first one was an intelligence damage and then the following ones were wisdom damage or something right. along those lines and those were real clunky to try and manage because there were a lot of things that scaled based off of your attribute scores uh your reflex fort and will saves were all based off of your dex con and wisdom scores your hit points were based off of your constitution score you know your attack bonuses are based off of your class's primary attribute whatever that happened to be and so there were a lot of things that would fluctuate a lot if you ended up taking attribute damage Absolutely. I think that's one thing too. With fifth edition, without attribute damage, I am more likely to write things in pen on my character sheet than pencil. Right. Yeah. I remember erasing and rewriting so many things in third edition. Yeah. There was so much because, <laughs> and that was another thing where if you took constitution damage, not only did you, you know, reduce your health, it reduced your max hit points. Yeah. And so you had to recalculate your max hit points every single time your constitution score changed, which was very inconvenient. Yeah. And so with that, it was very, like I said, there was a lot of bookkeeping that if you're doing it by hand, you don't have something like D&D Beyond or algorithm set up or a spreadsheet. It was hiring. Yeah. It was a lot of number crunching, a lot of bookkeeping. Yeah. And that was why I rarely messed with it whenever I was playing 3.5 is because it was just so tedious. True. Again, that is a fair point. But then we fast forward to 5e. 5e made the effort to try and become more player friendly, especially compared to the crunch of third edition and the video game feel of fourth edition. So in fifth edition, some of the things that happened that I don't think were intentionally designed to, you know, remove poisons from the game or anything of that nature. I think they were just incidental and they decided that it wasn't worth their time to try and fix it. Poison became the most resisted damage type in the game. Yeah. I mean, everyone got poison resistance. Everyone got dark vision. Yeah. <laughs> so like all of the demons and devils have poison immunity. There's so many things that have poison resistance or poison immunity. And then on top of that, with the exception of, I think, two creatures in the base monster manual. I think it's just the intellect devourer and the shadow. They removed all attribute drain effects. Yes. And with those, again, I don't miss attribute drain too terribly, terribly much. And some of your heavier, bigger monsters, that is the thing that makes them scary. So I can see that. But I really don't miss attribute drain at all. No. And so on top of all of that, they also pruned the poisons list yes so like i said in the third edition book you had something like 30 poisons that you could choose from it was a full top to bottom table on one page in the back of the dungeon master's guide yeah and they have reduced that to i think like i said 12 or 13 items and almost all of the poisons in 5e deal damage they're damage dealing poisons they're not condition status effect poisons. There are still some status effect poisons, but most of them are damage dealing and most of them have a fairly low con save. Like Yeah, and I'm okay with a lower con save for some of these. Again, I think that comes more across like making a spell scroll. My other big complaint with 5th edition is 
all of your poisons are a single dose. Right. And that seems a little bit weird to me, especially for the poisons you can create, how much you have to put into them, and you get one shot with them. Uh, I kind of see that. I kind of don't. That's something I would like to change. Yeah. So some of the poisons that are still present in 5e... As I mentioned, you know, you have your three just basic damage dealing poisons. You've got Serpent Venom, Wyvern Venom, and Purple Worm Venom. Purple Worm Venom is the famous one in, you know, metagaming circles in the 5e community because it is a 12d6 damage with a DC 19 con save. That's average 42 damage. Yeah, I was going to say that's as close as your poisoner is going to get to casting Fireball or Meteor Swarm where you get to throw the brick of d6s down. (laughs) Right, yeah. And so the loophole that some people try to go through to try and say, well, my character is part of this organization that carries out assassinations, so they would be aware of what Purple Worm Venom is, and then they can use, I think it's Conjuration School or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and use a certain ability to create a poison. And so they are able at level one to create purple worm venom and hit things for 12 D six damage with a DC 19 con save at level one. Yeah. That's a no. Yeah. And that's a no, we (laughs) no, that's not how that works. That's where the DM throws the D four at the character and says, no. Right. And so another one again, carrion crawler mucus, It has the same save DC as it would on the creature, which makes sense. But it's a save or be paralyzed. I do like that because, again, I I miss those status effects. You've got torpor, which save or be incapacitated for 46 hours. You've got truth serum, which is a it's an ingested poison and it's basically a con save zone of truth. I mean, that could be really interesting, especially with the party. So again, with the uh, Tomb of Annihilation game I'm running, my players had encountered some of the Yanti and I gave them actually a bit of ground they were looking about. And so they were scooping up some stuff, trying to fan. I'm like, hey, you found this. This could be, you know, basically a flask or a vial of poison for And I was going to say it wind up being a single dose. Our cleric wound up putting it in a jar. And of all things, our barbarian doing barbarian stuff thought, hey, let's spike my drink with this and see what happens. It didn't end well for the barbarian. (laughs) But again, if you've got this truth potion and you've got a barbarian doing barbarian things, you know, it could be really interesting. Or if you've got, you know, maybe a rogue who wants more information because he doesn't trust someone in the party and they spike a player's drink that could lead to some really interesting player interaction, I think. Or just even with the NPCs, if your players are crafty and how they try to deliver this. Right. I'm more inclined to have them use this on NPCs. If you're going to be doing player versus player things, you need to make sure that everyone at the table is okay with that before you start doing that. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Don't just start doing hijinks (laughs) to the other players' characters at the table because that's not okay. Right. But yeah, I think that of these... Truth Serum is one of the few that has a very strong roleplay potential. Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's only a DC 11 con save, so it's not going to be very useful most of the time. I would almost want to take something like that. Again, with that DC 11 con save, it's a fairly low con save. I might bump that up and say that it lasts for just a short amount of time and kind of like speak with dead where you can ask just like a, I think it's three questions. You can get three truthful things with this truth serum or, you know, only a certain amount of information at once. 
Right. And I can't remember, because now I have to look it up. Um, <laughs> I can't remember exactly how long it lasts. Do, 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 do. Truth serum, one hour. Yeah, that's not terrible. I mean, that's a bit of time in game, but that's not terrible. And again, that depends on the DM on how they deliver it. And then if they know it's working, all, all that stuff, too. Yeah, I would personally want to, like you said, raise the DC and shorten the duration. Yeah. Like make it a DC 15 and it only lasts for like five minutes. I could see that. I think if we did that, I mean, seeing this and kind of gives me the inspiration for another, maybe instead of a pale tincture, we have a pink tincture and same DC, same con save, and it casts friendship for an hour or for five minutes. You know, that would be a great, because we've all had that buddy who's drank a little too much and then I love you, you're my best. And so, I mean, how great would that be to be an actual poison you could give somebody? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could work. And now mentioning the pale tincture, is the other one that I'm really interested in on the 5e poison list. So the way that this one works is it only deals 1d6 damage per day. And, but, it's a, but it's a DC 16 con save. And you right. have to succeed on seven saving throws to end the poison's effects. That's It doesn't hit hard, but it's hard to shake. And the kicker is you can't recover hit points by any means until you're cured of the poison. And I love that. That is so sneaky. That is one of the sneakiest poisons I've seen in a long time, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's one of those great ones for whenever you're wanting to have this nefarious, greasy rat of a character who's like trying to weasel his way into the hierarchy. And, you know, somebody in the family has this wasting sickness. Oh, yeah. That nobody can figure out how to cure it. And it's because it's not a sickness, it's a poison. I could see that. The other really nasty way I could see this being used the entrance to a dungeon, like right at the start, you walk in the dungeon, you step on a pressure plate or a tripwire or whatever, and your party walks into a fog. And this fog is, in fact, this pale tincture. So you all roll con saves and those that fail, oh, no big deal. And then you're in this dungeon and you're taking a short rest or long rest to heal up and get your spells back, but you're not healing back up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an ingested poison. Okay. So that would be trickier to do. Right. But the way that I would do it is I would have a magical trap where if they set it off, it casts destroy water. Oh, yes. And so all of their water skins go empty oh, nice. because it destroys all the water. It's just gone. And then, you know, a few rooms further in, there appears to be this natural spring. Oh, yes. You know, and so they're like, oh, we can refill our water skins. And, you know, if they don't think to cast something like detect poison before they do it. Or purify food and drink. Yeah, or just a preemptive purify food and drink. You know, if they don't take those measures beforehand and they just fill it up because, you know, this isn't going to have any taste to it. It's not going to have any color to it. It's just going to be there latent in the water. And so they fill up their water skins and go along on their way and they drink it themselves. Yeah. And then they have to keep making the con saves every time they drink from their water skins. Oh, until they empty them. Yeah. 
And so unless they manage to figure this out before the entire party gets poisoned. Yeah. And then, 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 you know, the entire party ends up getting poisoned and suddenly nobody can recover hit points. Yeah. And so they're rolling this con save, not understanding why they're rolling the con save. And then even after they purge or clear out their water, they're still rolling those con saves to hit the saving throws to end the effect. So like they're going through and they're traveling and your party's like con save, con save. Okay. Yeah. Con save. And they're not going to know what's going on. And so I think that also puts a good harsh, it doesn't stop, but it definitely limits metagaming. Cause you're like, Hey, roll a con save. And everybody's like, Oh, okay. What's going on. I want to roll again, or I want to check around because you know, you rolled for something. And so you want to know what's going on. And so a lot of players, even not intending, start trying to metagame, trying to think around what they're rolling against. So even right. if they've cleared their rations and they're still hitting these con saves, trying to make the save, they're not going to know what they're rolling for. And that way you could probably sneak in some other stuff too, as well for some other rolls that could also sneak up on your characters. Right. And this could be a good way if you happen to be one of those DMs that writes down all of your PC's attribute scores. Oh, yeah. You just roll for them. Oh, yeah. Behind the screen. <laughs> and you, you don't even tell them what you're rolling. You just roll. Right. Because you don't take your first damage until 24 hours in. And then it's 1d6. And so, like, you know, they finish their long rest and you just roll a d6 for everybody. And you're like, oh, you all take three points of damage and you haven't recovered any hit points from your long rest. You don't feel refreshed. You don't feel yeah. recovered. I mean, you still get your spell slots back. Yeah. And you still get all of your abilities back, but you just feel like death. <laughs> Basically, you're rolling sleep apnea. <laughs> More or less. More or less. Yeah. And so one of my big complaints about 5e poisons is that most of them don't even inflict the poisoned condition. Yeah. Only the ones that have a second condition. So the ones, you know, like torpor, drow poison, essence of ether, malice, you know, all of these ones that you get a second condition while you're poisoned. That's the only time that you have the poisoned condition. I mean, the poison condition isn't terrible. But it's very inconvenient. I mean, I think it's you get disadvantage on ability checks and saving throws or is that ability checks and attack rolls? It's ability checks and attack rolls. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not saving throws. It's just ability checks and attack rolls. And so, again, that's what happened with our barbarian in my Tomb of Annihilation is they sat there. They rested. He decided to poison himself without realizing it because he was being a barbarian. And then they got attacked by a ghoul with some zombies and our barbarians up there trying to swing at stuff. And he's rolling everything at disadvantage and couldn't hit nothing for nothing. <laughs> and so he's just sitting there swinging for the fences. And he was completely ineffective, which it was amazing how much, hey, you've got a disadvantage on your tech rolls, how much it limited the barbarian just right there off the bat. And so just instilling this poisoned effect on either your monsters or your PCs can really shift the battle map real fast. Right. And that's also the big thing that I really don't like about a lot of the poisons in 5e is that, you know, because it is the poisoned condition and this other condition happens while they are poisoned, if they're immune to the poisoned condition then they're also immune to the second condition because it doesn't trigger if they are poisoned. Right. And so, yeah, all of these poisons sound really cool, 
but there's like a third of the monsters in the monster manual that you just can't affect with them. Right. And again, that does make it kind of clunky. And I think, like you said, I think that was more happenstance and wording. Right. But again, hopefully that is something they do correct with D&D 1. Right. All right. So going into talking about poisons more broadly and taking some inspiration from our actual real world, I would consider there to be three categories of poisons. You have animal poisons, typically like venoms, but they could be something like, you know, symbiotic bacteria, like in the saliva of a Komodo dragon or some sort of alien physiology, something like whenever you get an incompatible blood donation. So like whenever you have an incompatible blood donation, the immune system attacks the donor blood. And so you have this massive, you know, immune response and it can have lots of really nasty end effects. It can be ultimately fatal in some cases, stuff like renal failure, you know, kidney failure and things of that nature if it's left untreated. But things like that, just completely incompatible blood types, you know, so like you get beholder blood. This is some creature from the far realms. Its physiology is completely alien to every possible thing (laughs) in the material plane. You get beholder blood and you get that injected into somebody's bloodstream. Yeah. That can cause some really nasty things to happen. I would say even just like open wound contact. Again, if you've got a barbarian or fighter just doing a splatter fest, I would have them roll a con save just to be sure. Right. So the second category would be mineral. So certain inorganic compounds. A lot of it is elements. So things like lead and mercury and arsenic. But you also have various compounds like verdigris. Yeah. Specifically, you know, copper oxides are very dangerous (laughs) if you burn them off and inhale the smoke. But the thing about these mineral poisons is they tend to be slower acting. They tend to build up gradually in the body and they tend to have effects that don't really show up in any real noticeable sense until it's really too late to reverse a lot of it. Right. So cyanide's kind of like that, too. But arsenic was known as the king of poisons because it was used to poison kings. And it was sneaky. It was something that you'd put in the food a little at a time. They generally couldn't taste it. And a month or so later, they got sick and there was no reason why they should be sick. And it was this arsenic toxicity that built up in their system. Right. And then finally, the third category, probably the largest category would be vegetable. So plant based poisons, poisons that are derived from leaves, roots, sap, fruit from the seeds. Some examples would be hemlock, nightshade, foxglove, things of that nature. So, yeah, most of the poisons that you would run into, especially in the ancient world, would be plant based. They would just be poisonous plants that you're like, just don't eat that. Yeah, most of them would be plant based. Again, your more expensive ones would actually be along the lines of the mineral I was actually reading recently a really interesting book called The Poison King about Mithridates. He was a king that ruled from basically modern day Turkey to modern day Ukraine, Asia Minor. And that was his passion is apparently his father was poisoned. He thought he was going to be poisoned. And so like he very much studied poisons and their antidotes. And he had this thing called Mithridatum, which he took every day. 
and he believed that a small dose of all these poisons he could build up immunity much like the dread pirate roberts in a a princess bride you know you could build immunity but yeah and so he collected plants from all over things certain animals that had poisonous blood because they ate different things and minerals from all over his kingdom and he ground them all up and he took a small dose of them every day to prevent himself from being poisoned right now that leads us into the next thing which is categories of poison administration you know how you get the poison into the body because different poisons affect the body differently depending on how you would administer them yes there's some things that are perfectly safe to touch But if you eat it, you'll die. Fair. And then there are other things that if you touch it, it can get absorbed through your skin and into your bloodstream and you'll still die. (laughs) So the first category would be contact poisons. You know, anything that can be administered, that can be absorbed into the skin through touch. Yeah. Some examples would be like mercury. Uh, Mercury can be absorbed through the skin. Also poisons like poison dart frog venom or dried foxglove flowers. Yeah, these are both methods of that. There's also, you know, a series of chemicals that are created now modernly for pharmacology that will also help transport various things through the skin. Things like a nicotine patch, you know, uh, you've got chemicals that will actually increase the uh, solubility of different chemicals through the skin. So were you making a toxin, this would be a way that you would Okay, and again, this would probably, you'd want to find an alchemist for something like this, but again, would be a method to transport an otherwise non-skin permeable toxin through the skin. Right, and that can be a way to administer one of these very slow-acting poisons. You get an accomplice in as the washerwoman, and you just line the inside of his socks. Oh, yeah. And so it gets absorbed from his socks whenever his feet get sweaty you know, absorb into his skin through his feet. That is gloriously evil, Ian. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something like that. I mean, I wouldn't have even thought of that if you hadn't mentioned like the nicotine patches, you know, the dermal dermal patches. Yeah. And I mean, someone's got, you know, stinky feet and so they're not going to be smelling a poison just throwing on socks because they got stinky feet. And there you go. I mean, yeah, yeah, they they might already be putting things in the socks. Yeah. You know, that would be like, you know, various potpourris and things like that to try and cut down on the smell to begin with. So you start like throwing in some like nightshade and foxglove into that potpourri. And that's how, oh, that is brutal. Well done. Well done. (laughs) So that would be the first one. Uh, (laughs) The second one is ingestion. Ingestion is probably the most common form of administrating a poison in the real world. The most common way to poison yourself is to eat something you're not supposed to. Yes. Most plant poisons are ingestion poisons. Most mineral poisons can be ingestion poisons. I was going to go ahead and reference good old King. Was it Joffrey? No, it wasn't Joffrey. Yeah. Yeah, it was Joffrey. Joffrey was the one who died. He got poisoned. poisoned Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking then, no, Robert was the father. Yeah, so yeah, Joffrey. Yeah, so good old King Joffrey. There you go. I mean, a glorious example of a very well done poisoning that carried off very well. Most mm-hmm. of your D&D poisonings, again, you're going to be sitting at a table. You're going to have your rogue sitting there do a sleight of hand check to try to drop something on someone's cup or on someone's plate. Right. The third one and the most common one in game would be injury poisons. Yeah. So these are poisons that are administered directly into the bloodstream, usually coating a weapon and stabbing somebody with it. Yeah. Most 
animal venoms would be considered injury poisons. But there are some plant and mineral poisons that could be administered as injury poisons. But primarily, like, animal venoms are going to be your most common injury poisons. Right. I know in the 50s and 60s, there was rumored to be an assassin that apparently would tip his bullets with a bit of mercury. So even if he missed and the the target survived, they had to deal with mercury poisoning. And I could see a rogue or a ranger possibly doing something like that, getting like special mercury lined arrows or quicksilver arrows so that you could administer a poison or toxin this way. Uh, You do have a lot of elemental damage arrows, but again, poisoning an arrow wouldn't be too far out of the realm of reasonable or possibility as well. I mean, if you're going to go to the extent of coating your arrows in something to make sure they die, even if the you know arrow doesn't kill them, just use feces. <laughs> Fair. I mean, I mean, it's it's everywhere. It is everywhere. Yeah. It's going to make it go septic. OK, that's it. My character's pooping on everything now, Ian. <laughs> You're your, your character everywhere. Bloop is a mushroom. I don't know if mushrooms poop. <laughs> Bloop will poop for this example. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, getting off topic. <laughs> and then the last one that is used in D&D would be inhalation poisons. These are poisons that are absorbed through mucous membranes. Most commonly, you know, through the nose and mouth, but can also be absorbed through the eyes and other orifices that are typically not exposed. And so you generally wouldn't take up these poisons there. Um, (laughs) Yes, generally. (laughs) But I digress. So you have some plant poisons that can become airborne stuff like poison ivy oil or strychnine if you're burning the plants the oils can get into the air and you can get very sick from breathing the smoke right but there are also many mineral poisons as i mentioned earlier verdigris is one um zinc is one that's one that i had to deal with a lot when i was a welder because there's a thing you get called fume fever if you're breathing zinc vapors if you're having to weld on galvanized metal it will make you feel like you have the flu for about eight hours yeah and then you have just the absolute worst hangover of your life yeah you Um, could take a lot of these contact poisons and if you grind them up into a fine enough powder Again, you could blow them in your player's face or something like that and right. bring into an inhalation that way as well. Right. And the other metal that we had to deal with on occasion that was one that they drilled into our heads in welding school to this is the reason why you never burn the heads off of bolts if they're painted. You always clean the paint off first. Cadmium. Oh, yeah. Cadmium sneaky. <laughs> Cadmium is a more recent metal that is used for galvanizing. Uh, you can tell a cadmium coated bolt because they have that red gold sheen to them. And if you are burning off cadmium and inhaling the smoke off of that, that can kill you in like eight hours. Ooh, yeah. Like I said, that stuff is pretty rough stuff. You definitely don't want that in your system. Yeah. And, and it's something that it can be innocuous enough to where you're just like oh that is very annoying irritating smoke right now and then you leave and you you know eight hours later you start feeling sick and then you just drop dead yeah and as james was mentioning you know most of your inhalation poisons are the result of burning something and breathing the smoke off of it 
Um, but it can also be applied to dusts. So if you have a solid material that you grind up into a powder and use that, that can be an inhalation poison. Vapors, so things that are very volatile that are going to evaporate quickly, the vapors can be poisonous. And also aerosolized liquids. So if you are able to mist it, you can inhale yeah. it that way. Yeah. Anyway, now that we have gotten ourselves onto some FBI watch lists. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all, all the red flags everywhere. 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 It's like Seville. Um, yeah. So this is where we do our disclaimer of don't actually do any of these things that we're telling you about. This is for end game purposes. Yes. This is for educational purposes. Do not apply this knowledge. This is for tabletop, not real world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think they bought it? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. Uh, I would not do well in prison. Uh, so I had some ideas for how to make poisons more dynamic okay. at the game table. Um, ways to give them more utility, both in combat situations and in roleplay situations. Okay. So the first thing is reduce their damage, extend their duration. Especially with things like the Serpent Venom and the Wyvern Venom and the Purple Worm Venom. These are one-and-done applications. Yeah, unfortunately. And in the real world, Snake Venom is not a one-and-done thing. No. <laughs> it stays in the body until either the body's metabolism or immune system or an anti-venom that is introduced to the system neutralizes it. Right. Which can take hours or days or possibly even weeks, depending on the snake, if it doesn't kill you first. And most of the time, if left untreated, it will kill you first. Yeah. So what I would say is, even though this would reduce the combat effectiveness of most poisons, that would be damaging poisons, it would greatly improve their roleplay utility. So you have the damage, in the case of Serpent Venom, let's say, Instead of dealing 3d6 damage in all in one go, it starts off as dealing three damage. But you have to roll that con save every 10 minutes. And okay. every 10 minutes, you take another three damage. And you take more damage. And you take more damage until the poison is resolved. Now, see, I like that. And that has the feel of that kind of ticking damage from, like, the first Final Fantasy. I know the poison effect worked like that when you're walking. And like Fallout 1 and 2, if your character got poisoned, again, it didn't do much damage right away. But if you just wandered about without resolving it, it slowly wore you down. Yeah, same thing in Pokemon. Yeah. You know, in Pokemon, if your Pokemon has the poisoned condition outside of combat, they lose one hit point for every five steps you take. Yeah. And so that's the sort of vibe that I have going here. And so another thing that I have for... You know, making this more dynamic is each successful save reduces the amount of damage per tick by a set amount until that amount hits zero. I could see that. That would be fair. So like the Serpent Venom becomes a you have to save every 10 minutes. OK, say. And, you know, the first application deals three points of damage. Well, say you save on the second one. Well, now it's reduced to two. So yeah. you take two points of damage. And then the next time you save again, oh, it's now it's one point of damage. And then you have to save one more time in order to completely remove it. No, I like that. That seems reasonable. I don't know if I would do 10 minutes is good. Uh, I think depending on whether your party is role playing at the time or in the middle of combat, I might do it per round. 
perhaps that might make I it think too it would, I think it would depend heavy. on the poison. Yeah, that's fair too. I mean, because there are certain poisons that are faster acting than others, yeah. like cyanide. Cyanide yeah. is a very fast acting poison. Yeah. <laughs> but snake venom isn't. Right. No. As, at least in a human being. Right. You know, and if you were to reduce the damage, you would be able to stack applications of poison. Yeah. And I do like that, too, because it has the effect or it has the feel of the body actually metabolizing the toxin, whatever that toxin may be. Right. And that does have a very natural feel to it. Right. And that's the idea that I had going on. Okay. So the next thing that I would say is, and this is going to be a very controversial hot take, don't allow for a saving throw to resist the poison being applied. Ooh, ooh that's a hot take. <laughs> because most poisons IRL don't give a fuck what your con score is. <laughs> um, depending. I mean, sometimes you need a certain body mass. If you have more mass, it's not going to hit. I mean, it does hit your system, so I get that too. Right. Um, and I get that. But, you know, if a rattlesnake bites you and pumps a bunch of venom into your arm. Yeah, there is no con save. <laughs> there is no con save. The venom is there. It is going to start working. You are poisoned. It's just how bad is it going to hit you? No, when you think of it like that, I totally get behind that. And your con save, if you have a con save afterwards, like I said, is how hard is that truck hitting you? Because the truck's already hit you. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And whenever you combine that with the reduced damage, extend duration, incrementally reduce the damage per con save. Okay. Whenever you combine all of that together, then it becomes a much more realistic interpretation of how poisons really work. Yeah, I like that. Um, so... I would say, you know, whenever they get hit by the poison, you still let them make that saving throw. And that first saving throw, if they succeed, gives them automatically that first tick towards resolving the poison. So instead of the baseline three points of damage, if they succeed on their saving throw, whenever they first get bit, their first poison damage is only going to be two. I would, for poison resistance, I would change that to they have advantage on that saving throw. Because, I mean, you're resistant, and just because you're resistant doesn't mean you automatically save. I, um, I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay. I wasn't okay. talking about poison resistance. Oh, okay. I was talking about whenever they get hit. Okay. That first time, whenever you get hit. Okay. And then, as you were mentioning with the poison resistance, because that is the next item on the itinerary, uh... <laughs> You were reading ahead, James. Sorry. <laughs> so with poison resistance, I would say they just automatically get one save. They still get to roll their save, so they might end up getting two saves on that first. Okay, saying it like that, I like that. That's fair. And then each turn, they automatically get a save, even if they don't roll for it. You know, if they choose to roll for it, they can get two saves. Okay, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, okay. because if they have poison resistance, then that means that their body is naturally attuned to metabolizing poisons. Okay. And so their bodies would naturally metabolize it faster, and therefore it would stop working faster. I like it. So, And that way, even if they botch their saving throw, they still have that one tick of reduction every single turn. That's how the poison resistance, I think, should work. Yes. And then continuing on to poison immunity, because there are lots of things in this game with poison immunity. Demons, all demons have poison immunity. All devils have poison immunity. All undead have poison immunity. All constructs have poison immunity. Some of them make sense. 
you know, undead, it makes sense because in most cases, there's not a there's no bodily functions for the poison to affect most constructs. That makes sense because they're automata. They don't have the bodily functions to make a poison work. However, comma, (laughs) demons and devils are living things. Their life is different compared to living creatures on the material plane intrinsically because of the plane that they are from, but they're still living creatures. And so the thing that I would say would be for creatures with poison immunity, change it to where they are only immune to certain types of poisons. I could see that. And I was even to go, even with the undead, especially if we start dealing with poisons more with status effect than HP damage, the undead as they are ambulating around, unless you're talking about ghosts and specters and things like that, but like your zombies and your ghouls and your skellymans do have some form of biological function because, you know, they have sight, they have hearing, they have the ability to move. So there is some sort of muscle movement and metabolism within the muscles going on. So I'd say not necessarily skeletons, not necessarily the skeletons. Well, I mean, the skeletons are still going to have sight of some sort, but yeah, but it's magical. It is magical. It's the magic that is animating them. Okay. I will grant you that on the skellymans, but like your zombies and your ghouls are still going to have enough of a body to still have some form to mimic or mere biological function. Right. So Time for my next hot take Okay. regarding poisons. I think that you should change the way that lesser restoration works. Okay. And not let it just automatically cure a poison. Ooh, that's... So the way that I would want to do it is I would want to treat it the same way that counterspell works against spells. Okay. So basically, you take a poison... You take its save DC, you subtract 10 from it, and that would be the sort of equivalent spell level of the poison. I like that. I would add an addendum because, again, generally your lesser restoration is going to be cast by your clerics. I would make them make either a nature or medicine check, and if they can identify the poison via, again, either a nature or a medicine check, give them advantage on that lesser restoration to counter the poison specifically. Well, I would say that the way that that would work is they make that medicine check or that nature check to identify the poison. So that way they know what poison it is. So they know if they have to upcast it. Okay. Because like counterspell, if the spell that you're countering is a third level spell and you are casting counterspell with a third level spell slot, it just automatically counterspells it. Yeah. Um, If it's a fourth level spell and you're using a third level slot to cast counterspell, then you have to roll. Okay, no, that's fair. I like that. And that does add, again, it adds more of that role play. Has your healer seen this kind of sickness before? Do they know what's going on? Can they properly treat it? Or are they just going to, like, send up a prayer and throw a spell? <laughs> right. And it's one of those things where they can't identify what the poison is. Are they going to burn their highest level spell slot for the day? Just to be sure. In an attempt to make sure to overkill it. Yeah. You know? In order to cure this poison and then be out of a high level spell slot. Yeah, I mean, is it the end of the day and you're ready to rest and get your spell levels back? Or is it right at the start and you realize that you've been poisoned 
and you just now you're waking up and you're realizing, hey, I'm not getting my hit points back. What's going on? Right. And so whenever you would cast Lesser Restoration, if the poison's quote-unquote spell level is higher than the spell slot that you're using to cast Lesser Restoration, then you would have to make a caster ability check for Lesser Restoration with the DC being the poison's DC. And if you succeed, the poison is cured. If you don't, it's unaffected. No, I, I like that. I like that a lot. I would say maybe if you don't, maybe the poison's not unaffected, but maybe they get a free con save. So you do get some benefit for the spell so it doesn't completely fizzle. Because, I mean, again, Lesser Restoration, that's a second level spell to start with? Yeah. Or is it first? Yeah. Second. So, I mean, even early on, that's not anything you just want to toss out, you know, for free. So I would be willing to give them a free con save at the very least. Like, here's your booby prize. <laughs> Yeah, I would say if they fail by less than five. Fair. If you fail by five or more, then no, it's just it fizzles. You, Fair. Yeah. It's wasted. Yeah. You're not spending a second level spell on purple worm venom. <laughs> I mean, you could if you can make the DC 19 ability check. <laughs> right. You know, and then you can also take this and extend it to abilities like the paladins lay on hands, because right now you can spend five hit points from your pool to cure a poison. Yeah. And where now it would be every five hit points that you spend counts as one spell level, one poison level. So okay. in order to cure a DC 13 poison, you would have to blow 15 hit points from your lay on hands pool. I could see that, you know, and more potent, more difficult to resist poisons would require more magical oomph to neutralize. Okay, I'm behind that. Um, and while I was thinking about that, when I came up with that, I realized that the same thing could be used with regards to the remove curse spell and curses, because that's a big gripe that a lot of DMs have is, you know, you don't do curses because it can be removed with a third level spell. Yeah. And that could be a way to add a little more variability and a little more dynamic gameplay with curses. I, I could see that. Next thing on my list is implement more non-magical remedies. So most poisons should have an antidote. Absolutely. In some cases, the poison is so fast acting that it doesn't matter if it has an antidote <laughs> because you're not going to be able to reliably administer the antidote before the poison kills the target. Yeah. But in most cases, Poisons are slow acting enough that you can administer an antidote if you know what the antidote is. Right. And people have been developing antidotes for poisons for millennia. Absolutely, I mean, that yeah. was one of the primary support columns of early medicine. You know, the herbalist, medicinal, the medicine man and whatever not that you have in whatever culture, you know, curing poisons and curing injuries were the two big things that they did. Yeah, I am absolutely behind this. And again, the history of toxicology and pharmacology is one of those things that's interested me for a long time. So yeah, I think there again is a lot of role playability with this as well. Right. And this is a great way to get some extra mileage out of things like the nature skill, the healer feat proficiency with the healer's kit, proficiency with the poisoner's kit, things of that nature, you know, getting some more utility out of those items that 
you get at level one and then never use. Yeah, it's really, again, that is one of the big gaps in 5e are things like the healer's kit and things like that that just kind of nobody uses them. How often do you use your gambler's kit or your toolkits or, you know, whatever your proficiency, you know, like your proficiency with your tools are very seldom used, unfortunately, in 5e. And I think that is a huge travesty. Right. And, you know, again, if you're using the reduce the damage, extend the duration on your poisons, that makes finding an antidote far more viable. Absolutely. It becomes it becomes a quest. It becomes a goal for role play. And so that is a way that you can integrate poisons more thoroughly into your game for role play purposes. Yeah, no, I like that. And again, the first thing that comes to mind is a Shrek where she sends Donkey off to find what was it the plant with like red berries and, and blue flowers or something like that. Yeah, blue flowers and red berries. Blue flowers and red berries. Yeah. I mean, but right there, that's a great quest hook. That honestly could be a great level one quest hook is that your party's traveling along instead of, hey, everyone meets in the tavern, your party's part of a group or a caravan, and someone in the caravan gets poisoned and your party's sent out to find an antidote. And then you run into beasts or goblins or bandits or just game happens. But that's a great story hook right there. And you don't have to be in a tavern. You know, it's not that stereotypical trope. And right there, your players are there. Something's going on. They're hooked in. There is a consequence. They've got to find this or person's dead. You know, yeah. Yeah. So a couple other things. The first one is change the damage type on the poison. Just because it's a poison doesn't mean it has to deal poison damage. Absolutely. Some poisons like brown recluse spider venom cause tissue necrosis. So it makes sense for those poisons to deal necrotic damage instead of poison damage. Exactly. A lot of these ingested poisons will change your body's pH, things like acidosis. So acid damage would make a lot of sense. Right. A lot of toxic minerals like lead and mercury affect mental capacity. Yeah. Have them deal psychic damage. Ooh, nice. You know, things like that. Just give it a little bit of variety. And in doing that, you can also start getting around a lot of the poison resistances that these monsters have because it's not poison damage, it's necrotic damage. Yeah. You know, well, I'm resistant to poison while well, you're taking necro damage. So, ha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can resist poison all day. Your tissue is just going to rot away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing, and this is something that you touched on a bit at the beginning of the episode, give poisons additional effects that don't directly hit hit points. Yeah. But not necessarily things that deal status effects either. I mean, I'm good with using something like cockatrice blood as a petrification poison. Yeah. But you can also have things like making a poison that you'd call something like Magebane, where it's designed to combat spellcasters. And so whenever you administer the poison to the spellcaster, it makes it more difficult for them to cast their spells. So like if they're under the effects of this poison, they have to make a caster ability check every time they go to cast a spell, DC 10 plus the spell's level. And if they fail on that caster check, the spell fizzles. Yeah, that is great. I love that as a spell. A couple more I kind of thought of would be a weakness poison. So if, again, your fighter, your paladin, your barbarian, 
they get poisoned, maybe it takes off, you know, one of their die they roll for their damage rolls. So they're they're rolling at half damage or something like that. So they're just not hitting as hard. Or if you've got someone that uses your bow, your arrow, your crossbow, your sling, maybe it fuzzes or vision. So their vision's limited to 30 feet. And so now they're poisoned, but they only have short or nearsightedness. Right. And talking about, you know, weakness poison, I think the easiest way to do that one is you're not able to apply your ability score modifier to your attack and damage rolls. Oh, yeah, that'd work. That would be the easiest way to implement that. Yeah. So like, yeah, your barbarian might have 18 strength and have a plus four on their attack and damage rolls. Not anymore. Yeah. And that would be a very easy to implement mechanic that has a very dynamic influence on the game. Yeah. And as a DM, you could sit there, you know, you, you get this poison and you sit there and your your players getting ready to swing, but their limbs feel kind of shaky and they feel sweaty and their their weapons weigh more, feel like they weigh more than they should and they're just harder to lift and you're aching as you move. I mean, we've all had flu and you know those body aches you get when you have flu. Yeah. I mean, that totally, no one's swinging for the fences with that. No. And then the last one would be poison might inflict the effects of a spell like confusion slow or hypnotic pattern yeah i really like that idea of the poison that could cast friends for a short time too i think yeah that could be a lot of fun yeah <laughs> you know because it's in that same vein as like a truth serum of something yeah. that it doesn't negatively affect the target per se and by the spell you know they know if you've cast friends on them just like they would know hey this happened somebody put something in my drink i know what's going on but you know, the damage is already done. Right, yeah. And the thing that I really like about those particular things, like being able to have a confusion poison, is it gives non-casters the utility that casters would get. Yes. In very specific circumstances. You know, so like the rogue can do crowd control with a poison and doesn't need a sorcerer or wizard to do it for them. Right. And I mean, sometimes you have a party without magic casters, you know, either you're running a, a super low magic campaign or, you know, your world has low magic or, you know, sometimes you just have a, hey, we're a group of five fighters and we're doing a warrior's guild type thing, you know. And so, yeah, yeah this would be some great utility. And, you know, it could just be that the casters didn't prepare any crowd control spells that day. Yeah. The cleric didn't prepare hold person for the day. <laughs> And then suddenly they need to have hold person. And so the rogue throws a specific poison onto their dagger, stabs the guy, and he's suddenly frozen in place. Yeah. I mean, a great, like I said, there's a lot of utility that you could use. And really something so simple can affect, like I said, affect the battle map in a weird way, whether you hit the big thing or you just hit the small thing so you can focus down the big thing. Really that kind of crowd control if your players are thinking about it really does shift the game quite a bit. All right. We've been going on for a while now. Um, yeah, this was a, we got into the weeds on this one a little <laughs> bit. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about crafting and harvesting poisons. And I think that's going to have to wait for another episode. Possibly, um, yeah. But that's fine because that gives us both a little bit more time to come up with some ideas and to look more at older editions and how they implemented things and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think that'll, pretty much do it for tonight yeah so thank you everyone for listening if you have any comments suggestions or ideas you can send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or you can come join us in the discord we have a link to the discord in the show notes 
come chat with us directly that way. We would love to have you come over and talk with us. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Mastodon, and Blue Sky at Undercommon Taste. We are still technically over on the platform formerly known as Twitter, but I'm not really using that very much at all anymore. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where our write-ups go whenever I have a chance to get some write-ups done. I've got a couple in process. My daughter has been out of school all week this week because of the snow, and I have had no time to do anything. My (laughs) brains are leaking out of my ears. I am really looking forward to next week when she's actually out of the house all day. (laughs) It'll be be wonderful. It'll be great. Um, So with regards to Itch, the Solo But Not Alone 4 bundle is still running. It's going to be running through, I think, March 9th. My solo RPG Forever Home is in the bundle. It is a charity bundle for the uh, mental health awareness charity. Take this. You can get 124 games for $10. Go pick it up. Support that wonderful charity. Play the games. Review the games. Give some feedback to the creators. Give some traffic to the creators. If you find creators that you really like, pick up some of their other games. It's a great way to introduce yourself to a lot of creators that you might not know otherwise. I've been slowly working my way through the bundle again because my daughter's been home all week. I haven't had a whole lot of time to get into the bundle. I haven't had an opportunity to make the second video of my reviews of the games in the bundle, but I have started working through the bundle. I am making reviews for all of the games in the bundle. All of them are going up on TikTok. They're getting cross-posted onto our YouTube if I remember to do it. But yeah, so I've got all of that going on right now. So go check out the bundle. You can find a link to the bundle in the show notes. Or if you want to pick up our uh, Liminal Horror Adventure uh, Beneath the Lake, you can do that over at undercommontaste.itch.io. If this is your first time listening, we're so glad you found us. Welcome. Um, we're so happy you could join us. You can find our other podcasts at the Podcatcher of your choice. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility, lets us know what you want to hear more of. Also, if you want to join me on Fridays, I am continuing Baron Swift's Touch Adventure Adventures in Baldur's Gate. So we are now out of Candlekeep Hold. Uh, we are headed towards the Mind of Nishkel, and we have had some wonderful adventures, and we are doing a playthrough of Baldur's Gate 1 through 3. We are discussing game element designs, how the games reflect the game editions of their times. So it's been a fun adventure thus far. Stay safe, everyone. Don't poison anyone. Yes. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe. And we'll see you then.